Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So uh, just as a way of an introduction for chapter 2, because if you weren't here last week and we were in Haggai chapter 1, um, this is the uh, this prophecy here, this book of Haggai, it's written after the captives have been released to go back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And uh, there's about 50,000 Jews. Ezra records most of this. There's about 50,000 Jews out of probably, I don't know, a million, maybe two million Jews that were in captivity that went back to Jerusalem as pilgrims, basically, to start rebuilding the temple. And they started rebuilding the temple, and everything was really going well. They had the blessings of Cyrus, king of Persia. They had uh, the, the, the gold that was taken out, the gold articles that were taken out of the temple returned. So they had uh, the, the gold furnishings. They, the Bible says that in Ezra that uh, the people, they had favor with the people, and the people just gave them you know money or whatever they gave, so that they had the materials and the resources to do the rebuilding. And they started rebuilding, but there was some opposition there, as we talked about last week. And, uh, and as a result of that, uh, after about two years of starting on the foundation of the temple, they stopped building. And uh, the, the temple lay basically in a, in a state of, uh, you know, just incompleteness for uh, about 14 years. And it was at that time that the Lord raised up Haggai uh, to basically ask them this question, you know, uh, you, you say you don't have time to be working on the Lord's house, and I'm paraphrasing from chapter 1, but he says, but, but you have time to live in your paneled houses while the Lord's house lays in ruins. And it was an exhortation to get back to work, to start rebuilding that foundation, to rebuild the temple. And the cool thing at the end of chapter 1 is that the people obeyed. And they responded to the word of God. I mean, you know, as a pastor, sometimes I share the word and, and uh, you know, I, I see fruit in people's lives. But, you know, sometimes, you, you, you know, you teach the word and you go, man, I really hope that that sinks in. And you don't really know sometimes how it affects people. Sometimes I find out, you know, it's something really, you know, somebody really responded to the word or something like that. But here in Haggai's case, man, he shared the word, they obeyed right away. I mean, that was that was really encouraging for Haggai. And uh, But the problem with the people that Haggai brought out in chapter 1 is that they had misplaced priorities. Their personal lives became more important than the work of the Lord, um, and so one of the th- phrases that's repeated through the first part of Haggai is consider your ways. Think about the way you're going. Think about the direction your life is taking you. Think carefully about the path you're heading down. And while you're thinking, think about the direction that your choices and your priorities are taking you. And that, that's an important thing for us to do as well. Look at the direction your choices are taking you. Are your choices and your priorities bringing you closer to the Lord, or are they leading you further away from Him? The people had misplaced priorities, and as a result, the Lord was withholding His blessing from all that they did. 
all the things that they pursued. They were supposed to rebuild the temple, but instead they just got into their own, you know, whatever the renovation projects or whatever they were doing. And, you know, they, they poured themselves into these other things, but God withheld his blessing. So they didn't have satisfaction. They didn't have joy in what they were doing. They didn't have fruitfulness in what they were doing. The Bible says that uh, the heavens above you withhold the dew. And, of course, you know, no rain is an agricultural society. That's kind of an obvious thing. But it also is a picture of that prayer and that fellowship with the Lord that, that was hindered because they were in disobedience to him. They, were, they weren't pursuing the Lord. There's that broken communication with the Lord. And, uh, and then he says the earth withholds its fruit. In other words, you know, there's no rain, there's, so there's no crops. And so, you know, they're really in a barren situation, lack of fruitfulness. And that's true in our lives when our priorities are skewed, when, we're not, when our priorities are not aligned with the Lord. You know, he's, that communication with the Lord, it's like, you know, you're praying. And it's like, wow, I don't I feel like the Lord's not even hearing me. My prayers aren't getting through. Well, maybe you need to examine where your life is at. Where are your priorities? And, of course, the lack, lack of fruitfulness, the biggest symptom of that is just a lack of joy. And uh, so after 14 years, the remnant of former captives, they obeyed the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai. And so the Lord responds to their obedience, and he says, man, I am with you. I am with you. Now, when the foundation of the temple had been completed 14 years earlier, before the people had misplaced their priorities, you know, they spent two years working on it. In Ezra 3.10, there's, a, there's a, a, a story that's told about as they're laying the foundation for the temple. And I'm just going to read it to you. In Ezra 3.10, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, uh, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. You see, evidently, they were in captivity for 70 years, and evidently there were some of the captives that returned. Maybe they were, you know, children, probably would have been children, maybe 10 years old or even younger, maybe. And they remembered Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. They, they remember the glory of Solomon's temple. These guys are probably in their 80s or maybe even older now. They remember the good old days, the glory. And while the young people are celebrating, it's like, man, we finally got a temple. We're working. We're, we're getting close anyways. You know, we got the foundation. We're getting there. And they were celebrating. Yeah, we're, we're back and we're doing this. The old men are like, man, they were just weeping because this new temple, the new foundation, it was nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. And so the older men were weeping. Well, that brings us to Haggai chapter 2. And so if you want to read along with me, verse 1, it says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? So compared to the splendor and the glory of Solomon's temple, the foundation of this new temple, man, it just paled in comparison. You know, we, we, we always say Solomon's temple, but it wasn't Solomon's temple, right? It was the Lord's temple. It's just Solomon's the one who built it. But that temple was built, if you recall, it was built in a time of great joy. When Solomon was king of Israel, that was the golden years of Israel. I mean, that was like the pinnacle. Everything was just wonderful when Solomon was king of Israel. It was their golden age. And Solomon spared no expenses in building the temple. They also didn't have any hindrances when they were building it. They were at peace with all the nations around them during Solomon's time. Um, you know, it, it was basically, you could imagine the old guys go, man, that was the good old years. Man, I mean, things were great back then. Um, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about that, uh, just thinking about the Calvary Chapel movement. And uh, some of you have been around and know, you know about the Calvary Chapel movement. Some of you were involved with it back in the early days. I was not part of the Calvary Chapel movement in its prime. Um, but I remember in the late 70s, I visited a church that was started by a Calvary Chapel pastor back in California where I grew up. And uh, it was like, okay, this is kind of different. You know, they meet in high school. They sing worship songs. A lot of people have long hair. It's just like, they, it's just not like the church. I'm, you know, it's just, it's different, definitely different. Um, and uh, it, it just kind of stuck with me. And then later on, uh, it's kind of a long story. Actually, you can read it in my, my uh, uh, testimony on the webpage. But basically, later on, my wife and I became a part of that exact same church in the mid-'80s. And then around 2000, uh, you know, and since then, of course, we had moved back here to Minnesota. But uh, around 2000, I really started sensing the nudge of the Lord or the nudge of the Spirit that, you know, I'm eventually going to become a pastor myself. And uh, it's kind of a, I'm really condensing a, a long story. But um, eventually, 2003, I, I, it happened officially. I was ordained as a Calvary Chapel pastor. Uh, or we were officially affiliated as a Calvary Chapel pastor. And as uh, once we became official, <laughs> um, then I started attending the senior pastors conferences that were held in Marietta, California. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. They, they, they bring up the guys that would come up there and they'd start sharing their testimony and, and testimony after testimony of these guys that go, yeah, you know, I, I came out of Raul Reese's church. I came over here, you know, and, and uh, uh, we started a Bible study in our home. And, you know, there was like two people at first. And, and, uh, but we just started preaching the word. We just, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And pretty soon the, church, the thing started growing. We grew out of our home. We rented a school. We grew out of the school. You know, now we're in this big, you know, 5,000 auditorium, seated auditorium. And, the, the thing just grew exponentially, and, and uh, now we've got thousands of people. And, you know, I'm sitting there listening to that going, wow, I wonder if that's going to happen here in Rochester, you know? Just preach the word, you know? You put the dev up on the, on the front of the church, and people come, you know? they like, wow. 
Well, that wasn't it, man. People come here and go, man, are you a cult? <laughs> what are you guys, man? You're weird. Um, it was different, but you know what? That was an incredible move of the Holy Spirit, an incredible move of the Holy Spirit in those days. The, it was called the Jesus Movement. Uh, but now it's like, you know, things are different. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's very easy to sit back and go, man, I remember the good old days. Man, those were good days. And look at now. And it's easy to get discouraged. On a personal level, some of you, you know, you gave your heart to the Lord and, uh, and, and you loved Jesus and you were just on fire for him. But then you started backsliding. And, and eventually you return back to the Lord and, and you go, man, I remember the good old days when I was just really tight and doing things with the Lord. And man, God was just doing all kinds of things in my life. And I look at my life now as like, man. There's a lot of scars, and there's a lot of baggage, and there's a lot of stuff left behind. And, and it's easy to get discouraged. Sometimes we even compare our situation to someone else's situation. That's another way we can get discouraged, right? We, we look at how God seems to be moving in their life and in their circumstances in a mighty way. It's like, man, what's, they're doing something, man. God must really love them because, man, look at my life. Things aren't happening that way in my life. And it's easy to get discouraged. Well, the old men here, as they're watching the foundation of the temple, they're recalling the glory of that original temple. And they were getting depressed. To the, I mean, more than depressed. They were just weeping over it. And so, verse 4, the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel and the people. He says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the, Lord, of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So, you know, the interesting thing is, the Lord was looking back. The, you know, the Lord's like, hey guys, do you remember the temple before? It was really glorious, wasn't it? Compared to what you see now, it's, it looks like nothing. You know, the Lord is actually acknowledging that that temple was glorious. Man, it was awesome compared to this little thing. But he says, but everything here, if you notice, it's, it's now in the present tense. Okay, yeah, that was a glorious thing. You know, I look at the Calvary Chapel, that was a move of the Holy Spirit. Man, it was a mighty move of the Holy Spirit. God was really working in a younger generation at the time. But now you're here. Yet now. What are you going to do now? And so that's what he says here. Yet now. That word yet now, it refers to a certain point in time that has been reached, but also has a logical function at the same time. And basically what it means is since we were at this time and set of circumstances, therefore. Okay, you're here now. What are you going to do about it now? So the first thing he says, be strong and work. Do you like that when someone comes to you and says, hey, just be strong? It's like they're saying, hey, just buck up, you know? Um, is that what the Lord's saying to a man? Just, just man up, man. Just do your best effort. Do your best thing. Just do the best you can. That's not what he's saying. I like what Paul says in Ephesians 6.10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong, but not in your own strength. Be strong in the power of Uh, in the Lord and in the power of his might. You see, if you rely on your own strength, you're going to be disappointed. 
you try to do everything on your own, you're going to be disappointed. You know, to be strong and do your best effort, it may work in sports, and it may work in, like, other physical activities, but it doesn't work in the spiritual realm. Your best is never going to be good enough. You're never going to do good enough. You have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to rely on the Lord and in His power. Second Timothy, Paul wrote this to him in Second Timothy 2.1. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul, the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh. You guys know that story that, where Paul writes about that. But in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, the Lord's speaking to Paul. You know, Paul is praying that this thorn in the flesh be removed from him. And the Lord speaks to his heart and he says, and he said to me in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, it doesn't have anything to do with our strength. It has everything to do with his strength. In fact, God wants us to be weak. He wants us to acknowledge our weakness because in our weakness, that's when his, strong, his strength shines through. And so Paul responds to that. He says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I heard a testimony this, this last couple days at this pastor's conference of, of a couple that they, they, they made a stand, basically, and, they, and he was a worship um, leader at this huge church, making a large income and everything, and, and uh, the church started really uh, watering down the gospel so that they could bring people in. They were starting to accept uh, you know, people with uh, you know, all kinds of sin they didn't want to acknowledge sin of people because you know we don't want to offend people we want to keep people coming in and the worship this guy that was a worship leader he just he was really struggling with it he was really having a hard time with it so finally he just quit and uh they lost their house and they're they're going like he goes man I'm lucky if i like 15 bucks in my pocket you know i mean they're just really struggling and and i'm listening to them sharing their testimony and uh they're just sharing how the lord is just you know they're, they're just every moment they're on their knees praying out to the lord and the lord's providing just a little bit here a little bit there there's he's always taking care of them and and i thought you know as much as i don't like to be in a situation like theirs where you know you, you don't know where your next meal is coming from it's such a beautiful place to be because man it's like you're just you're just relying on the lord you're not relying on your own strength at all that's that's the best place that we can be so you know none of us like to be sick none of us like to be weak and we don't like to you know we want to be in control but you know when we're in control we have that pride right it's like well, i can take care of myself and we tend to not rely on the lord it's only in those times when we're in in utter weakness utter helplessness that's the time where you go lord i i, I need you Man, that's, that's where I'm like, I kind of envy those people in a way. <laughs> I don't want to say it too loud because I want the Lord to really take everything away from me. But, you know, um, anyway, so, so, so be strong. And then he says, and work. And uh, basically, that word work, it's a verb meaning to do. Of course, that makes sense. Uh, to make, to accomplish to complete, but it says this frequently used Hebrew verb conveys the central notion of performing an activity with a distinct purpose, a moral obligation, or a goal in view. God had released those captives. He had given them the charge to rebuild the temple. That was their goal, 
And, uh, and so basically saying, hey, get back and start doing that work that you were called to do. The plan hasn't changed. They may have lost their priority, their original priority, but the goal has not changed. God says, hey, get back to what you're supposed to do. And then he says, for I am with you. Now, one of the reasons why they stopped 14 years ago rebuilding the, the foundation was because they had faced opposition. The Samaritans, we talked about that last week. If you want to listen to the message, you can get more information about it. But the, the Samaritans wanted to assist in building the temple, and the Jews said, no, 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 we don't want your help. And uh, they got all of a sudden, they became their enemies then, and they, they along with other uh, peoples around there, uh, opposed the Jews, the Hebrews, as they were rebuilding the, the foundation. So part of it was, you know, they, they just, they had opposition, and so then they stopped. And, uh, but now they have lack of resources, right? Because God had withheld blessings from them. So now they don't have the money that they had originally. They had opposition. They, they didn't have the, they had a lack of resources. Everything seemed to be going against them. And here the Lord is telling them to be strong and work. Why? Because he is with them. You know, if anyone in the Old Testament, save except for maybe Job, I think he's in his own category, but if anyone, with the exception of Job, had so many things going against him, I think it was Joseph. You remember Joseph? You know, he's the one who, you know, his brothers sold him into slavery. They, they, I mean, they, they, they threw him in a pit and they ended up selling him to, to some Midianite traders. And he went as a slave to Egypt and when he gets there, you know, everything seems to be going against him there. In Acts um, chapter 7, verse 9, Stephen is talking about it. And he says, And the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. He says this, But God was with him. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. You guys know that whole story about Joseph. What was meant for harm, God used it in his life because God was with him. And God blessed him and God took care of him and stuff. And so that's what God's telling to the captives here or to the returning captives, the remnant. He's saying, man, I'm with you. Yeah, you don't have resources, you don't, but I'm with you. It says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. In other words, according to God's faithfulness, his Holy Spirit remains among you. Now that's an Old Testament term because the Holy Spirit was among them in the, whole te- in the Old Testament. He would, he, once in a while he would come upon a person like Samson. You know, he got this spirit would come upon him and he would have all his strength. Or the prophets, the spirit would come upon him and they would prophesy. You and I, man, we are so blessed under the new covenant. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit, when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Bible says he's a sign and a seal of your salvation. He never leaves you. He's there. Now, the Bible also says that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we, when we disobey him, when, we, when our priorities are, are messed up, and when we're sinning against it, we grieve, but he doesn't depart from us. I don't understand it. 
I certainly don't deserve that, but that's what the word says. And so he says, my Holy Spirit remains among you, fear not. So after telling uh, those that were being nostalgic about the past to be strong and start working now, he then directs their attention to the future. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now verse 6 and first part of verse 7 is quoted, uh, in fact that's the only portion of Haggai that's quoted in the New Testament, it's quoted in Hebrews 12.26. And the writer of Hebrews is, is quoting this and telling the Hebrews, hey, you know, it's, it's a future event. In other words, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. There is a time coming when God will shake the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land physically. He's gonna, it's going to shake. I mean, this, the creation as you and I know it, is, it's going to be completely altered. When is that going to happen? Well, it's recorded in Revelation 6 and uh, Revelation 16. In Revelation 6, during the Great Tribulation, when the six seals uh, poured out, let, let me just read this to you. I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? That was the sixth seal. In Revelation 16, the seventh bold judgment, it says this, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great." during that great tribulation, the last seven years, the last three and a half years, there's going to be this tremendous upheaval of the earth physically. God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And he says he will shake all nations. Now, Haggai kind of knew that. He understood that because in Haggai's day, man, Babylon was a world empire. And practically or actually literally overnight, they were conquered by the Medo-Persians. And, and that nation was shaken. They had fallen. And then the new empire was uh, the Medo-Persian empire. 
Well, later on, the Medo, Medo bleh, excuse me, the Medes and the per- Persians, Persians and the Medes, whatever, their empire would be replaced by Greece as a world empire. Their world would be rocked. Their world would be shaken. Their nation would be shaken. Well, later on, they would be replaced by the Roman Empire. Kingdoms would come and go all the way down to your and my age. I remember one time seeing a... Uh, a little video, I think on YouTube or something, and they had the map of Europe since, I don't know, the beginning of the century or so, and they just, it was colored of the different nations, and it's kind of like a time-lapse thing, and it shows, you know, through the years, or through about 100 years, how the nations have changed in Europe, and it's it's amazing to watch, just like the nation gets bigger and small, bigger, small, you know, it's just everything's moving around, it's like, well, that's that's going to happen. Kingdoms are going to come and go, even in, in our age, and it will continue until the millennium when Jesus reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And it says, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Now I'm reading out of the New King James Version. I like the King James Version. It's a little bit of a different thing there, a little bit of a difference there. Let me read it to you. The King James says, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The desire of all the nations, I think, is none other than Jesus Christ, who filled the temple with his glory. When did he fill the temple with his glory? In John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Man, the people, they didn't even understand that the, the, the temple was filled with the glory when Jesus walked in there. Verse 8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. You know, I think the Lord here is telling them because their current poverty, you know, it paled compared to Solomon's day in rebuilding the temple. Solomon was the wealthiest man. I mean, there, there was, it was the golden age of, of Israel during that day. So there was no expense spared. Here, these rem, this remnant, they're in relative poverty at this point. Even for, compared to 16 years ago. 16 years ago was better, at least. They had more money. They had favor. But, you know, it was nothing compared to earlier. But God says, I love that. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. You know... All of our wealth, you might say, well, I've earned my paycheck. Well, you know, it's God's money. It's, it's God's. He's the one that gave you the money. He's the one that gave you the intellect to be able to earn that income. He's the one that's given you the health and the intellect to be able to work with whatever, you know, you use your mind or you use your hands or whatever, however you, you, however you make a living. God's the one that's giving. It's, it all belongs to him. It's all his one of the things that, you know, as elders, you know, we're, we're, you know, with this purchase of this church building, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big thing. It's a big step of faith. Our, our payments are going to go up. Our insurance, church insurance is going to go up, you know, and, and we don't have a guarantee that if we build it, they will come. <laughs> you know, we don't have that. We're, we're not basing it on that. We're basing it. Now, we're looking at our finances and we're trying to be good stewards of, of the finances that the Lord's provided, but... At some point, we have to take a step of faith. At some point, we have to say, God, if you're guiding this, you're going to provide. That's one of the things that Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel always said, man, where God guides, God provides. And you'd say, where God guides, God provides. You know, he had that really low voice. I loved it. Um, But 
It's true. I've seen it in my own life. You've seen it in your life. When God is guiding you, he's going to take care of it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't have to beg you for money. And some churches do that. I hope I, well, I, if I ever start doing that, you just kick me out of here. But, you know, God's the one that provides. He's the one that moves on the hearts of people. I don't, I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to beg. I, I don't have to make people feel guilty. God's the one that does it. Well, he doesn't manipulate. (laughs) You get what I'm saying. (laughs) Sorry, Lord. (laughs) I want to be like Moses. You know, you misrepresented me. (laughs) I wasn't mad at him. Verse 9. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The temple... As glorious as it was, and you could pick whichever temple you want, it was only a type of the glory that fars excels it. What was that? I like what James says in chapter 2, verse 1. He's speaking about the Lord of Jesus, and he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Can't get much more glory than the Lord of glory. John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the Scripture says there, And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So the, the Lord of glory, I think is just speaking of Jesus and speaking of the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this whole stuff that, 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 that's being spoken of, that the Lord is speaking to uh, through Haggai to the people, you know, he starts out saying, yeah, that temple was, it's nothing compared to what it was before, right? And, and then he says, now I want you to work, and I want you to be strong and do the work, and I'm with you. And then he goes into this whole prophetic thing about future events. Why? Because they had no idea that the work that they were doing now for the Lord would reap spiritual benefits later. Sometimes we just don't know how you, you know, you, you, you minister to somebody or you, you, you witness to somebody in the workplace or you meet somebody and you just start, start sharing the Lord with them. You have no idea how God's going to use that in the future. And they had no idea that you know, so the Lord's saying, hey, this temple, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a measly temple, but you know what? The, the temple is going to be, this temple is going to be more glorious than Solomon's ever was. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus is going to walk in there eventually. And it's just a picture of Jesus, the Lord of glory anyways. Those future blessings would far surpass the, blas- the fa- past blessings. They just needed to align themselves with God's priority. And now in verse 10, it says, on the 24th day of the month, of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priests answered and said, No. What he's talking about is you have something that's ceremonially clean, ceremonially pure, it's holy, it's set apart. If it touches something that's unclean or impure, does it make that unclean thing or that impure thing pure or clean? 
The idea is basically something clean, if it contacts something unclean, it doesn't transfer the cleanliness to the unclean thing. Well, and then he says it this way. He says, and then Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it, become, uh, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So he reverses the situation. Something that is clean or pure, if it comes in contact with an unclean or an impure thing, that clean thing will become unclean. And the point being, purity is not transferable by contact. But impurity is. The Bible even talks about on a spiritual level, bad company corrupts good morals. My mom used to always say that to me. You know, she, was a, she always was careful what friends you hang out with because bad company corrupts good morals. You know, another way to look at this, and with people being sick around here, this is probably going probably to really hit home. Let's say you feel really lousy today. You go home tonight, you, you know, gonna, I'm going to go home after church, I'm just going to sleep all day, and, and then I've got to work in the morning, and so in the morning you feel cruddy, you still got the flu or whatever, and you go to work, and maybe you work in a cubicle and you got another coworker, and they come in and they're like, man, I had a great weekend, oh man, I'm fresh, I feel great, man, I've never felt better, and they're, they're working and you're making contact with them, it's like, you think they're going to make, all of a sudden I'm going to catch their clean, I'm going to catch their health, <laughs> Oh, man, I feel better. I, I was next to my coworker who was good, and, man, I feel good now. No longer feel that doesn't happen, does it? We wish it would happen. Just the other, the other way help, happens, right? You know, if you show up at work, you've had a great weekend, you're feeling fine, and then all of a sudden your coworker pukes all over you, you know, chances are you're going to catch whatever bug they've got. I don't mean to get gross, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, that's the whole idea that the Lord is, is trying to convey to them, that that. that the whole concept. So verse 14, it says, Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. You see, as long as their priorities were wrong, the work that they did would not be pleasing and acceptable. Why? Because their hearts were not right in it. It's a whole thing in the New Testament with tithing, the whole idea with tithing. The Lord doesn't need or want your money if you give it grudgingly. The Lord says, man, give with a cheerful. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Verse 15, Now carefully consider this from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, and yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. See, sometimes the Lord allows, he withholds his blessings, not because he's angry with you, not because he's, he doesn't love you. It's because he's trying to get your attention. He wants you to turn back to him. And he was doing that to those, that remnant there for those 14 years. Man, they weren't, they had no harvest. I mean, it was like, it was a, they didn't, you know, they did all this work planting their crops and everything. And they'd have dry seasons and the, the, you know, maybe they had bugs or mildew or whatever. They, and their harvest, man, it was just measly. And it was because God was trying to get their heart's attention, trying to get their attention. He says, consider now from this day forward. 
from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. And he says this, but from this day I will bless you. You see, once their hearts were in the right place, once they realigned their priorities with God's priorities, he says, man, I'm going to pour out my blessing upon you. I'm going to bless you in ways you can't even imagine. As long as their priorities were not right, everything they put into their hand would not be blessed. There would be a lack of fruitfulness, a lack of contentment. But the very day that they changed their heart and they realigned themselves with God's priorities, the blessings would flow. There's a, there's a term, there's a phrase I like. It says, get under the spout where the blessings come out. You know, maybe you've ever heard that before, but basically uh, there's a verse in the Bible that kind of speaks about it. You know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You want blessing in your life? You want to have joy? You want to have a a sense of success in your endeavors and your occupation, all that stuff? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be blessed. Then the Lord will take care of you. Verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this appears to be prophesying of the great tribulation and the millennial reign of Jesus uh, on the earth following the great tribulation. That's the way I see it. If that's the case, in verse 23, it says, and in that day, it appears to be linked to the end of the great tribulation and the millennial reign of Christ in verses 21 to 22. And if that's the case... I'm saying a lot of ifs, it seems to suggest that Zerubbabel will somehow be given a special significant place of honor during the millennium. Maybe he'll be governor of Jerusalem. I don't know. You know, what also is interesting is that this Zerubbabel, he appears in the line of Mary. If you go uh, into the, the genealogy of Jesus recorded in Luke, that's the blood lineage of, of Jesus. Zerubbabel's name shows up in there. But if you go to the book of Matthew and you look at the legal lineage of Jesus down through Joseph, you'll find that Zerubbabel's name there as well too. And he's the last one that's on both, both genealogies. Kind of interesting. And so the Lord here is telling Zerubbabel and all the others, be strong and work. I am with you. I will bless you. I'm going to do a new work through you that will have an impact for eternity. And you know, the Holy Spirit says the same thing to you and I. He's chosen you and I for good works. He's called you into relationship with you, with him. I like what Paul says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, what are you doing today, right now, in your life for the Lord? Are you looking at the past and reminiscing or weeping? 
if you are, look, this verse is for you. Philippians, not this bud, this Philippians is for you. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're in my priorities are skewed if we're not seeking the Lord and his kingdom. You know, it, it, we all have been, and I mentioned this last week, we all have been given spiritual gifts. And it's important to find out what your, what, what your spiritual gifts are, and then it's more important for you to start exercising, start working, you're using your gifts for the kingdom. Not everybody's a, a pastor. Not everybody's, you know, a, a teacher. But, but there's so many different gifts and there's so many different ways that you can be working for the Lord and, and, and seeking Him and His kingdom. And all those other things that you pursue, they're going to fall into line as long as you've got your priorities lined up with the Lord. And so this is such a great encouragement to the remnant. And, of course, when we get into Zechariah, we'll be looking at some of that again. And you get ladies that study Nehemiah. That's a little later on in the history. You know what happened there um, with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And, but I think the biggest message here out of Haggai chapter 2 is what are you doing today? And I don't mean like right in this very moment, although it could be. But what are you doing in your life today? Are you, are you seeking the Lord? Are you, are you, are you working for him? Are you, are you doing things that have an impact on eternity? Or are you just, you know, busy doing your own things, you know, just focusing on your own life and just, you know, that's kind of on the side there. Because if you want satisfaction, if you want contentment, if you want joy in your life, man, put the Lord first in all that you're doing, and then all those other things are going to fall into place. He'll bless you in those things. Why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, in prayer.